Bible prophecy is often misunderstood and misapplied, which leaves many people confused or fearful. But when the Bible is studied in its proper context, prophecy becomes clear and understandable. There is no one we can trust more than Jesus, and His words will speak specifically to us as we study them in their simplicity. Welcome to Jesus on Prophecy. In 1492, Columbus sailed from Europe to the New World. And many followed his path looking for riches and new opportunities. And a small group arrived off the shore of Massachusetts in November of 1620. They came seeking something they could not find in the old world. What they were seeking for was freedom of conscience. Whenever the state seeks to enforce religious beliefs on its citizens, persecution results. And so the pilgrims actually fled for this very reason. They found it painfully true in England and later in Holland, and they sought freedom on the shores of America. The colony founded by the pilgrims attracted others seeking relief from the fines, imprisonments, and the tortures of the old world monarchies. Eventually, as many as 20,000 Puritans inhabited Plymouth Colony and the areas around it. But the idea of a complete religious freedom was hard to grasp. And take a look here from this quotation, which says, very few even of the foremost thinkers and moralists of the 17th century had any just conception of the grand principle, the outgrowth of the New Testament, which acknowledged God as the sole judge of human faith. A kind of state church was formed, and all the people were required to support the clergy. The magistrates were authorized to suppress heresy, that is, anything that disagreed with the doctrines that the Puritans held. And so we know a man by the name of Roger Williams, who immigrated to Plymouth 11 years after it became a colony, and he came with the conviction that God had more things to reveal from his word, and that the Reformation was to be continued. But expressing these views brought on him the charge of heresy, and he was banished from Plymouth. Alone in the woods in the middle of winter, he finally found refuge with a tribe of Native Americans that, that he had earlier befriended. And Roger Williams eventually found his way back to the Narragansett Bay, and he started a new colony, guided for the first time by a new fundamental principle. What was that principle? It was simply this. Every man should have liberty to worship God according to the light of his own conscience. This little state of Rhode Island, the smallest in what was to become the United States of America, developed a principle that would eventually find its way into the Constitution. And we see in our Constitution, it tells us, 
Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's what makes our country great. The fact that the pilgrims came, they were seeking religious freedom. And to this very day, we have that privilege of experiencing true exercise of religion without any governmental interference. But does the Bible, from which this principle is derived, predict the rise and future of a nation that for hundreds of years have been a refuge for those seeking the freedom to worship according to conscience? Does it predict a time when that principle will eventually be replaced with the same principle of the church and state that ruled Europe throughout the Dark Ages? And we're going to see what prophecy has to tell us. Because the interesting thing is that history tends to repeat itself. And we're going to see how prophecy will actually bring that to mind. So let's look at question number one. What other beast comes on the scene in Revelation chapter 13? If you were here with us nights before, we talked about Revelation 13. We talked about the first beast that came up out of the sea. Tonight, we're going to be focusing on the second beast of Revelation chapter 13. So I'd like you to turn to Revelation 13. We're going to be focusing on this chapter for the majority of tonight. We will go back and forth to uh, cross-reference other texts. But Revelation 13 is going to be the big focus for tonight. Revelation chapter 14, uh, 13, I'm sorry. And we're going to take a look at this second beast in verse 11. And we're going to have table number one read this for us. It's page 1183 in your Bibles. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, page 1183. Okay, so we see here that John the Revelator, he says that he saw another beast, right? This is the second beast. Um, it's distinctly different from the first beast. The second beast comes up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. A lot of details there. We're going to explore this uh, detail, after, detail after detail. So, according to the Bible, what does a beast represent in prophecy? Remember this? We talked about this last time when we were talking about the first beast. We, see Daniel, we looked at Daniel chapter 7, verse 23, which tells us very clearly what a beast in prophecy represents. We see that the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. So, whenever the Bible in prophecy mentions a beast... A beast represents a king or a kingdom or a political power. Are you following? We've covered this before. Does that make sense? Is that coming from the Bible? Yes, it does. So we see that a beast is a political power, a kingdom or a nation, government, right? So beast represents nations. They represent empires. And notice that the first beast in Revelation chapter 13, comes up out of where? The sea, the waters, that's right. 
And we learned what does the water represent in Bible prophecy? Well, you go to Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, and it tells us that the waters which you saw are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So waters represent people. Not just people, but a densely populated area where there's a lot of people. Yes? And so when the beast comes up out of the water, it's, it's in essence, is telling us that a nation is born out of a densely populated region. A nation emerges from a densely populated region of the world. Amidst war and strife, this nation comes to be. But in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, we see another beast coming up, not out of the sea, but it comes up out of where? Question number two, where does this second beast, this power, arise from? And so, we look at verse 11 of chapter 13, it says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the, what? Earth. Now, this is very interesting, because the first beast comes up out of the sea. We know that the sea represents densely populated area, right? So, this beast, second beast, however, comes up out of the earth. What does that mean? Well, it has to be opposite of a densely populated area, wouldn't you say? Uh, out of the earth would be a place where there's no water. Yes or no? Right? So this, this beast comes up out of the earth. So this is a place where it's a sparsely populated region, as opposed to a densely populated region where the first beast come up, came up from. Are you following? Does that make sense? Okay, so this first, the first beast comes up out of the sea, but we see that the new beast, in verse 11, this nation comes up out of the earth, or a sparsely populated area. And so, compared to the first beast coming up out of um, a densely part of portion of the nations of Europe, this nation comes up from a sparsely populated area. Some area in the world that was previously unsettled by nations, previously mentioned in prophecy. And so, question number three, when does this power arise? And we look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 10. And we will have the next table read that for us. This is page 1183. 1183, Revelation chapter 13, verse 10. Patricia, are you there? Yeah, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. Ah, okay. So this second beast arises at the same time that the first beast is going into captivity. And we studied earlier that the first beast represents who? Who? Papal Rome, right? So we see that Papal Rome gets its authority from the dragon, which is pagan Rome, which the papacy did receive that authority. We see that the first beast would be a worldwide system of worship, which the papacy is. We see that the first beast would claim that its priests have the authority to forgive sins, which the papacy does. And we also see that it will reign for 1260 
years. Historically, the papacy fits this picture exactly. There's no other power that fits all these details. There's none. It's the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church. Although the Bishop of Rome existed previously, his supreme reign began in 538, we learned, and his rule was to last till 1798, according to prophecy in Revelation 13. And that's, in 1798, that's 1,260 years after 538. So exactly 1,260 years is to span of rule for this first beast of Revelation 13. And we learned also that in 1798, uh, an event actually put an end to this beast's power. We see Berthier, the French general sent by Napoleon, took the Pope of Rome captive. And in Revelation chapter 13, verse 10, it says that the first beast, the papacy, would go into captivity during this time. And he did in 1798. In fact, he, the Pope not only was taken captive, but the Pope also died in captivity. And so the second beast, as this is happening in 1798, the second beast of Revelation 13, the new power seen emerging in verse 7, is emerging. Because the United States, when did it declare its independence? 1776, right? And then, get this, they voted the Constitution in what year? 1787. And, well, well, I'm sorry, 1776, they voted the Constitution. Uh, 1778, they adopted the Bill of Rights. Uh, in, in, oh, I'm sorry, that's right, I got that backwards. <laughs> Let me start over. The United States declared independence in 1776. Declaration of Independence, right? The Constitution was in 1787. They adopted the Bill of Rights in 1791. And clearly, the United States of America was recognized as a world power by 1798. So as the first beast receives a mortal wound and its power diminishes, we see another beast come up with its power rising, which is the United States of America. It's, there's no other power that rises during this time to prominence. It's the United States of America. Are you following? Does that make sense? No other power could possibly qualify as, being, as rising into prominence as this power, which is the second beast. And we see that Bible students for decades have seen the unique fulfillment of this prophecy in the United States of America. We see question number four. How does this power arise? We see in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, it says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. And G.A. Townsend, in his book, The New World Compared to the Old, on page 635, says this about the rise of America. Notice what he says. The mystery of her coming forth from vacancy, like a silent seed, we grew into an empire. So it came, he's saying that this nation came up out of the earth. Interesting. It's almost exactly like the description in Revelation 
13.11. It came up out of the earth like a silent seed, he says. What an apt description. A writer in the 1800s by the name of Uriah Smith, who wrote the book Daniel and the Revelation, in page 578 he says this, Emerging amid the silence of the earth, adding daily to its power and strength. He's speaking of this nation, this beast. The United States is growing uh, daily through its power and strength. And sure enough, we see how America came to be today. Question number four. What can we observe about the horns on this beast? Now, the first beast, the sea beast that comes up out of the sea, how many horns did that beast have? Huh? Ten horns. Now, this beast has how many horns? Two. Right? Two. These horns also is very interesting. It has two horns, but notice that the ten horns on the first beast, those ten horns also had ten crowns. This beast that comes up out of the earth has two horns, but there are no crowns. So what's what's the meaning of that detail? Well, we see that crowns indicate kingly authority. The absence of crowns indicate freedom from a kingly power. So the second beast's power does not come from a king or a monarchical form of government. It has two horns, which represents the prominent powers of this beast, of this nation. The two external principles that this nation derives its power from is what? Two powers that distinctly makes us different from any other nation is, number one, Protestantism and Republicanism. Those are the two prominent features of what makes our nation so great. Protestantism, a church without a pope, and republicanism, a government without a king. A freedom of religion and a democratic republican form of government was established through this nation, this power. We see that the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor is a symbol of the principles of conscience that has long been an ideal of citizens in the United States. But the scene changes in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. It reveals a change in the character of this beast. We see that it says that, notice that this beast is called what kind of beast? It is a lamb-like beast. Now, what does the lamb represent in the Bible? Christ. Christ. That's right. It represents Jesus, right? So this beast or this power, this nation, has the characteristics of Christ. In other words, this nation was founded upon and patterned after Christian principles. Now notice, the verse continues to tell us that it is a lamb-like beast, but it speaks like a dragon. Eventually, it will speak like a dragon, although it has the look of a Christian government 
founded on Christian principles, eventually, prophecy tells us, is going to speak like a dragon. Ultimately, someday, when this beast speaks like a dragon, religious freedom is removed. So the question is, how does any nation speak? It says that this nation, this beast, will speak like a dragon. How does any nation speak? How does a government or a kingdom speak? Any nation speaks through its laws. What did I say? Laws, through legislation. To speak like a dragon, then, is to use the laws of the land and political influence to war against the principles of God. So, question number five. What events will lead to totalitarianism rule and the rights of many will be trampled upon? Does the book of Revelation describe a series of events that will lead up to this happening? Where the rights of the minority will be trampled upon? Well, does the Bible indicate how this may happen? If you look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 through 14, it says... And he exercises all the authority of the first beast. This is talking about the second beast, right? That comes up out of the earth, the earth beast. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Oh, it's interesting. Now, this second beast is causing the whole world to pay homage and worship to the first beast, that first beast, it says, whose deadly wound was healed. When was that deadly wound inflicted? 1798. And since 1798, that wound was healing. till it was fully healed to the point where this second beast causes everyone to worship this first beast. Right? So, the second beast, the United States of America, exercised the authority of the first beast, the papacy, whose deadly wound was healed. Can this be possible? Can it? Well, friends, it has already taken place. In February 1992, Time magazine wrote an article called The Holy Alliance and told of President Ronald Reagan and Pope John Paul II working together to destroy communism in Europe. The United States provided military and economic power, assisted papal Rome, and politically to help obtain this victory. And it was known at the time when, the, when they had the Cold War that they caused communism to topple in Russia. And it was actually known as one of the great secret alliances of all time. That's happened where the church and state has worked together to achieve what was thought impossible. But will that happen again? What, will, what is to eventually take place, according to Revelation 13, is that there will be a church-state union established once again. 
There is a political religious alliance and there will be an erosion of religious liberty. And so question number six says, what will the devil do to create this alliance between church and state? And we see in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 through 14, it says, He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. The he that this is referring to is Satan. Great fire. Some people are confused by the symbolism of fire. But in the Old Testament, a pillar of fire led God's people by night. And we see that in the Old Testament, between the two cherubim, the two angels in the sanctuary, God's presence was manifested by fire. So fire is a symbol of God's presence. But this is false fire. The devil calls fire down and he performs signs and wonders in the sight of all those who witness this. And this here is an unholy fire, a false Holy Spirit movement, a false revival. And here's a movement to unite all, all religions and get legislators to sign laws that pass religious decrees based on signs, wonders, false miracles, and false tongues of fire. And we see, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which he was granted to, granted to do in the sight of the beast. It says he deceives those that dwell on the earth. How might this description be carried out by the devil? In America today, sadly, there are many serious social problems. Drugs and alcohol are destroying many youth. Sexual immorality is a commonplace. The national debt is at an all-time high. I think the last time I checked, we as a nation are in $22 trillion in debt. And it's climbing. It's not getting any better. The economy is on shaky footing. National, nat national natural disasters are a commonplace. Hurricanes, tornadoes, fires, floods, earthquakes have ravaged many cities and taken their toll. If these con conditions continue to worsen, friends, do you see how it may be possible at a time of national crisis for Satan to initiate a false revival, a false religious revival based on false miracles to unite people under his banner? Do you see how well-intentioned people could pass religious legislation and what that might do? You know, I, I hear from the Protestant churches that there's a push to legalize Sunday, to make people to worship on Sunday. And that may sound good and all, but what you're doing when you're, you're telling the legislators to make that legalized, we're going backwards from what the pilgrims escaped from. We are actually inviting the government to now establish laws to dictate how people ought to worship and our religious freedom and our religious liberties are at stake if we do that. And what we have been founded upon as a nation is going to be pulled out from under us in these last days. 
And we see in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 through 14, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lives. Our text describes this image that the second beast, the earth beast, will make of the first beast. And what is the image to the beast? We see an image, we know, is a likeness of something. So the Bible says that the second beast, which we know to be America, will make an image, a likeness of the first beast, which is the papacy. And how, what is that image that they are going to erect? We see, in other words, what this is telling us is that there will be a political religious union and church and state will unite. And when that occurs, religious practices will be enforced by law as they were under papal supremacy during the Dark Ages. And the events that will lead to this union, you might want to write these things down. Number one, Revelation chapter 18, verse 5, it says that her sins have reached to heaven. We see that... What does Satan do? He works false miracles. He walk, works false wonders. He gives signs, and these false signs motivate religious leaders as they push laws of sovereign worship in America. Revelation 18.5 says that her sins have reached heaven. And in other words, at the end time, society becomes like Sodom and Gomorrah. We're, we're living in that time, I believe. We're definitely seeing the same sort of things repeat as in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it becomes like the days of Noah, just like Jesus said. And religious leaders will say, the only way that we could save America from going down the tubes is that if we pressure our legislators and if they pass laws to bring us back to God. And that sounds really nice. But when you actually go and petition to the government to establish those laws... That separation of church and state is being blurred. And the average American says, that's right. Look at our country. It's going down the tubes. It's going down the drain. And you see how the devil works. He works to incite this sort of, this idea of like, we've got to do something about this. And we see then miracles begin to be worked in churches which are not fully following God's word. These false miracles cause people to say, Look, that's the power of God! But why is Satan doing all of this? To get a union of church and state. We see also, notice the second thing Revelation 18 says in verse 7, She has lived luxurious, luxuriously. So this is definitely talking about Babylon, which is the Vatican. And you know the Vatican's wealth? You know, bankers' best guesses put it at the wealth of, of the Vatican, their, their net wealth, at $10 billion to $15 billion. And of this wealth, the Italian stock holdings alone run to $1.6 billion, 15% of the value of listed shares on the Italian market. But it's also a time when economy will apparently be booming. We're going to be living, we're going to think that we're doing well economically, so nothing else could go wrong. The economy booms, but then at the same time, sin is prolific in society in a time of great luxury. 
And we see the third thing in Revelation chapter 18, verse 8. She experiences natural disasters. Now this sets the tone. This sets the stage. Natural disasters will come. Earthquakes, fires, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, and cyclones, and you name it. All these things transpire. God's judgment begins to fall in the land. Revelation 18, verse 10. Are you beginning to grasp the scene here? What is taking place before church and state unite? We see that something dramatic happens. Revelation 18, verse 17 says, Her riches come to nothing. So in a time of economic luxury, at a time when there is a rising crime and violence, at a time of natural disasters, the, economy the economic bottom falls out. The stock market goes down. And what happens? Religious leaders begin to say, we need to get back to God. All these things are turning south. We need to get back to God. We need to come together in great unity. Church and state must unite. Is what's eventually going to take place. A spiritual decline. Natural disasters. Social chaos and economic, economic difficulties lead up to this church and state union. And according to the book of Revelation... Satan takes advantage of the situation by introducing a false spiritual revival under the auspices of the Antichrist. And that's what the Bible says Satan does. Revelation chapter 13, verse 13 and 14. Let's have someone read that. Let's see how the, how the devil works in these last days. As these, are, as these events take place, it sets the stage for him to achieve the next part of his plan found in Revelation chapter 18, uh, 13. Sorry. 13 and 14. Revelation 13, verse 13 and 14, page 1183. And Todd, did you have that? He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Mm. So we see that, notice, he deceives those who dwell on the earth by what? What does he use to deceive everyone? Signs, right? That he's granted to do in the sight of the beast. So in other words, a religious revival at a time of economic difficulty. And how would that feel if someone's going through economic difficulty across the, across the nation, right? Morale's very low across the, the population. And all of a sudden, these signs take place. What would that tempt people to think? People will be rejoicing of these so-called miracles taking place. God has not given up on us. God is among us. And this, the people then put pressure on legislators. And notice what happens at this time. Revelation chapter 16, verse 14. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the, to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now don't misunderstand me. Does the Bible predict that there will be a mighty, genuine revival of the Spirit before Jesus comes? Amen, yeah. A genuine one? Yeah. Yes. The earth will be lightened with God's glory. Revelation chapter 
18 verse 1 tells us. The Holy Spirit will be poured out powerfully. The sick will be healed. But does it also indicate that Satan, knowing that the true revival is to come, he decides to stir up the masses for a false revival. Would that make sense? He leads that false revival at a time of chaos to put pressure on political leaders to sign accords that ultimately legislate morality. And question number eight says, how can you tell the difference between the true and false revival that is to come? Isn't that the issue? Notice what the Bible says. And Jesus tells us how we can tell the difference between a true and false revival. So please take careful heed to these next verses. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, page 941. We're going to have table number 5 read this for us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. How can you tell the difference between the true and false revival? Jesus tells us how. Page 941. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, page 941. What does Jesus say are ways for us to differentiate between the true and the false revival? Okay, can someone read that from table number five? Notice what Jesus says. He says, not anyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do what? The will of my Father in heaven. We see that love, true love for Christ, will always lead to obedience. It's not by what we profess to say, but how we live our lives according to God's will. Anybody can say, Lord, Lord. But if they love Christ, that love will compel them to do what he says. Amen? Amen. And Jesus says that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's many people who will say, hey, Lord, we have prophesied in your name. We have cast out demons in your name. We've done all these signs and wonders in your name. But what does Jesus say? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me. So we see... If they must be of God, this must be the true revival if they are in obedience to God's commandments. If they show the fruits, Jesus says, by their fruits you will know them, doesn't he? And so we see that those who practice lawlessness, he says, depart from me. This is the words of Jesus. We cannot get around that. We cannot dismiss this. Jesus tells us that this is going to be one of the determinants of whether or not we are going to be susceptible to the true revival or the false revival. If we do what he says by following his commandments. And that means all of his commandments. Amen? Not just nine. You can't get around that there's ten commandments. It's all ten. And the evidence is not what they claim to do in His name. The evidence is whether the grace of God has led them to obedience, to follow 
Jesus Christ all the way in keeping his commandments and having the faith of Jesus. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Satan is going to work false miracles. The crowds are going to be stirred up. Great charismatic leaders are going to arise and they're going to cry out that America is going down. They're going to cry out that religious laws must be established to legislate morality. But the Bible gives us a principle that will help us to know the difference between true and the false revival. We see another text here that tells us, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, page 661. Turn there with me, and we're going to have table number 6 read this for us. What is another test for us to determine whether or not it is a true or false revival? Number one, we notice that we must obey God and His laws and do His will, because the laws are the expressed, His expressed will. Isaiah 8, verse 20, 661. What is the next thing that helps us determine between the false and true revival? Okay. Okay, notice carefully. Thank you. The Bible does not say that there is no love there. There are many religious movements that that have a lot of love. But it doesn't say that there is no truth there. Many, a religious movement has some truth. The devil wouldn't deceive anyone if he didn't have some truth. It doesn't say that there's no power because the devil has plenty of power. The Bible says to the law, the Ten Commandments, the testimony of Scripture, if they are not teaching in harmony with God's law, it is because there is no light in them. So, just because a church teaches truth, that doesn't mean that necessarily mean that they have all the truth. We want to follow all the truth that the Bible says. Amen. If we want to be Bible-believing Christians, doesn't that doesn't that make sense? Yes. And so, we see that light is what God wants us to follow. On a dark night, you need light. Don't be concerned if this movement claims to have power. Don't be concerned if this movement is, po- is the popular majority. What you are looking for is light. The light of God's Word that shines in His law. The light of God's Word that shines in God's truth. Now let me ask you a question, which is question number nine. What vehicle did the devil use in the days of ancient Rome to unite paganism and Christianity? Remember, the Roman Empire was falling apart. But what did they use to unite paganism and Christianity? The pagans and the Christians had their differences, but the venerable day of the sun united them. What did I say before? History will repeat. I wonder if the devil can do that again in our age. Let's look at the past and try to learn some incredible things about the future by looking at the past. Because if we fail to take heed to history, we will repeat history. In the book, The Two Babylons, in page 105, Dr. Alexander Hislop, that's a very good book, by the way. You should read that book if you get a chance. 
In the two Babylons, Dr. Alexander Hyssop says this, to consolate the pagans to nominal Christianity, Rome, pursuing its unusual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated. And to get paganism and Christianity, now far sunk in idolatry, in this as so many other things, to shake hands. And so we see, now, far so, so we see that paganism, Christianity, in those centuries, shook hands. They united around one thing, a common day of worship on Sunday. And the Bible predicts that there will be a union of church and state even in America. This is what prophecy tells us. It's not me saying this, but the Bible tells us that this is going to repeat. And that religious leaders will lead out in this. And you think that they, if you think that that's going to be impossible, let me take you back to a mini crisis that we can identify with. The month is May. The year, 1976. In the May of 1976, there was a great gas shortage in America. There were long lines of cars at the gas pumps waiting to get a little bit of gas. Harold Linzel was the author of Christianity Today during that year, and Linzel suggested a proposal for solving the gas problem. And he said this, all businesses, including gas stations and restaurants, should close every Sunday by force of legislative fiat through the dully elected officials of the people. He said, look, we have a crisis in America. We can't buy enough gas. So if all the Christians will put pressure on their legislators, we'll just use Sunday as a family day. We'll, we will just save gas. We'll bring America back to God. That way we'll solve the gas crisis. And that was a mini crisis. But just think if it was a major crisis. If a major crisis hit America, could that not happen again in a broader scale? We see, notice Revelation 13, verse 15. It says, Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. You see the progression. Prophecy predicts that our freedoms will be taken away and no one will be able to buy or sell. And it goes even further with more stricter enforcement to those who do not comply will be killed. This is the Bible saying this. Many are pointing to man's industrialization of the planet as causing the climate change that affects many, especially the poor of the world. And in June 18, 2015, Pope Francis issued in his encyclical on climate change. You remember that? Notice what he says in his encyclical. He says, Sunday, like the Jewish Sabbath, wait a minute, it's not the Jewish Sabbath. 
But he's saying, it's meant to be a day which heals our relationships with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the world. Sunday is the day of the resurrection, the first day of new creation, whose first fruits are the Lord's risen humanity, the pledge of the final transfiguration of all created reality. It also proclaims man's eternal rest in God. You see, friends, in this way, Christian spirituality incorporates the value of relaxation and festivity, it says. And in this encyclical letter by Pope Francis on care for our common home, notice what is dangerous about this, according to the Bible. We should never cry out to the governments of the world to legislate morality to bring revival. The true revival is not us pressuring our political leaders to pass laws. That's not true revival. That's, in essence, going backwards from what we as a nation was founded upon. We're going back to Rome. We're going back to being enslaved by a church-state union if we do that. But here's how God says true, true revival will come about. Question number 10, what will bring genuine, true revival? 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, tells us exactly how. What will bring genuine, true revival? 2 Chronicles 7, 14, page 415. Page 415, and we're on table 7. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If we could have someone from table 7 read that for us. 2 Chronicles 7.14, page 415. What will bring genuine, true revival? Amen. You know, friends, we as a nation need to take heed to this verse. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, we're living in a wicked time, aren't we? Have we learned from our ways? And it says, Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. God is calling for revival. But he says, in order for that revival to come, we must do what? Humble ourselves. We must pray, repent of our sins, seek his face, and then, and only then, will true revival come. Because you see, friends, revival does not come by legislation. Revival begins in the hearts of our of each and every individual. Revival begins in our hearts, in your hearts, in my hearts. We get on our knees with our faces to the floor asking God to forgive our sins, repenting of our lust, our, our idolatry, our selfishness, our greed, our materialism. Do you agree with me tonight? God's revival is not a revival legislated by law. 
but it's a revival of the hearts. God's revival is to come deep from within us, not from government-legislated actions. And ladies and gentlemen, when that revival comes from the heart, we do not need the state to pass a law to keep the first day of the week holy. Because when that revival comes from our hearts, we are saved by grace, Jesus says. And Jesus says also, if you love me, keep my commandments. There are two revivals. The true revival and the false revival. There's a false revival for the majority. The false revival based on signs and wonders at a time of economic crisis and difficulty. The false revival gathers large numbers of Christians to put pressure on legislators to establish a Christian state that leads to totalitarianism. That revival that God is calling for is a revival, the true revival of the grace of God that washes me from sin. The grace of God that gives me power. The grace of God that leads me to obedience is a revival of God's law. A return to God's law and to all of God's law, including the Bible Sabbath. And I believe that this nation is going spiraling downwards because we have lost sight of that. And God have mercy on our soul as if we as Christians say that we do not have to keep all of God's Ten Commandments. Nowhere in the Bible has the commandments been changed. Nowhere has the commandments been taken out. There has always been ten. God wrote it with His finger. He never scratched it out. He never changed it. He says, my covenant will not break. You can try to twist the scripture any way you want, but that's not going to change the fact that God established the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath is at the heart of that. And if you say otherwise, you better be very careful. You must be very careful because you are going to be susceptible to the false revival. God's law has always been and always will be. And as a minister of the gospel, I cannot say that and stress that strong enough. We as a nation have forgotten God's law. We have, as a nation, have not taken heed to the entire law of God. And because of this, it's going to only get worse until we finally come to the understanding that His law must be upheld so that any nation that follows and turns back to God will experience a true revival. I love this country. I was born in this country. I'm an American citizen. And not too recently, my and recently, not too long ago, my wife also got American citizenship here in this country as well. We love what this nation stands for. We love the rights that we have. What a privilege it is for us to even meet here like this, where it's not possible for any other people in the world to meet like this. But friends, if we do not take heed to what prophecy tells us, we are going to repeat the same problem that this that early pilgrims tried to flee from. We as a nation must come back to God. Not by legislation, but by taking heed to God's word and God's law. We see 
In the dark centuries, when the church of, in- of Europe used the power of the state to put to death those who refused to submit to her dogmas, a faithful Christian was about to suffer martyrdom for his faith. A Christian brother came to see him in his prison cell. They discussed whether the Christian hope would sustain him while his body was being consumed by the torture of the flames or if the physical pain would be too much and his faith would fail. This brother was most anxious to know because he was sure that his turn would come next at the stake. And if he could have some sign some indication from his brother that would go into the midst of suffering before him to know that through his suffering Christ would sustain him. It would be a tremendous encouragement to him as he faced the same thing. And it was agreed that somehow the brother that's being burnt would provide some sort of signal during this ordeal if his hope and faith remain strong, if he can indicate that somehow. And the day came when the man was brought out to the jeering crowd and bound to the post and the wood piled up around him. The crowd watching with deep interest and within the crowd was this brother who was also watching to see what would happen. The flames were lit and began their attack. The brother watched intently, unable to look away from the horrible scene for even a second, lest he should miss the signal he so earnestly hoped to see. And at last, it seemed that the flame had done their work and there must be no life left. But still the brother looked on when suddenly, amid the flames, up went both arms toward heaven. The Christian brother, whose heart was becoming faint, caught sight of that joyful signal. It sent a thrill through his whole being and renewed his faith, his hope, and his courage. He wept tears of joy. He realized that that brother's hope And faith was secure in Christ, even in the midst of his martyrdom. And he said, if the Lord can be with him, I too can bravely go forth and do the same. To such things as this, Revelation 14 verse 12 tells us, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This describes those very few who will be faithful to the very end. They will be faithful during a time where the majority will seem to be insurmountably against them. They will be faithful in the midst of persecution and opposition for their determined commitment to keep the commandments of God and the faith 
of Jesus, just as those martyrs did before them. The Christian's hope is valuable enough to keep, even amidst the most agonizing suffering. Christ is calling you to be one of His own. To live His life of joy, faith, and hope, and courage. He's appealing to you to stand with those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. He's appealing to you to determine to live for Him and no one else. Not for a church, not for your friends, not for the people in your fellowship, but for Christ and Christ alone. Are you determined to live for Him, even despite whatever others around you are doing? Will you do it? Will you stand with the faithful followers of Christ throughout the ages? Will you stand with Jesus? He's willing to stand with you, but He cannot stand with you unless you stand for Him first. I want to ask tonight, how many of you here tonight want to make that stand solely for Christ and none other? If that is your desire, I'd like to ask you to stand right now. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Just as those three Hebrew worthies who faced the fiery furnace and were thrown in, they stood for you. They did not bow down to the government's image that was set up for them to worship. Lord, we know in the last days, in the same way, prophecy tells us that legislators and the government will set up an image that will cause everyone to worship. That day has not come yet. But Lord, may we, as we stand tonight, stand firm as those three Hebrew worthies for your truth, for your commandments, and for our faith in you to stand amidst persecution and difficulty. Lord, I pray that you'll please be with us. Instill in us through your grace the courage and the power and the willingness to follow you whithersoever you go. Forgive us for our sins, Lord. We do want to experience that true revival, but that true revival cannot come until we first understand our condition and our desperate need for you. Lord, we want to pour out our hearts to you and say that we are sinners and we are in need of a Savior. We count ourselves among this nation who are in desperate need of a Savior. A nation who was once established on religious principles but now are actually becoming hostile towards anything religious. Lord, have mercy upon us and this nation. And we pray for the leaders of this nation. We pray for those who are in charge of the political offices of this nation. And Lord, we also pray that you will help us to also stand in the midst of the time that Revelation 13 speaks of. 
Help us to say we'd, obey, we'd rather obey God rather than men. And Lord, we pray that you will please instill in us a desire and a humbleness to walk in your ways and to follow in your truth wherever it leads. Help us not to dictate our decisions based on externals around us, but on the clear truth of God's word. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, this is because there's no light in them. Lord, we want to follow that light. Help us to have that desire and that willingness to do so because of our love for you. May our love for you deepen more and more each day until you come. Thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.